0: to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on October 12th, 2019 at Provincetown Theater in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was Road Trips, Wanderlust, and Getting
1: Lost. Put your hands together for
2: Sylvia! (laughs) This summer, I was about to turn 10. My life changed. I was invited to an Easter picnic. And after barbecue and all sorts of potato salad and egg salad and all sorts of things that might, one might eat at a picnic, there was a race. And I made a decision. My decision was that no matter what, I was going to win this race. I don't remember who I raced. I did win the race but at the end of the race, which was up a hill uh, to sort of a place where they sold um, M&Ms and soda pop and popsicles and different things like a con- confectionery stand. Uh, the, it was a little brisk that day for, for Easter Sunday picnic and the door was closed and it was a glass door and I went bam and I won the race and the glass shattered. So I have something like 42 stitches in this wrist, happy ending to the story, great surgeon, and I've got complete mobility. Thinking about that and how I always tell that story and how it changed my life because I didn't die that day, um, I was thinking about a slightly earlier story that happened just before I turned 10. And it was with this same group of girls in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, girls whom I desperately wanted to like me. And I thought I would tell this story and I've never told it to anyone before. The most popular girl in our grade was named Robin Shanahan. She was popular, the most popular girl because she was funny. This is how I remember that she was funny. One night, uh, it was at a outing, uh, like a uh, overnight Girl Scout camp night, so we all drove up on a Friday afternoon, the girls from our grade who were all in the Girl Scouts, I was one of them, and we then, there was like a kind of break the ice kind of event that night. Um, and Robin was the star, and then the next day there were different activities, and there was bunk time and different things, and I think we had actually two nights to sleep there, and then we all carpooled back on Sunday morning. So this is what Robin did, and I think she was prepared for this. This is actually my suspicion because I think she had an older sister so she knew what Friday nights were about at Girl Scout camp so she came prepared so she had a big like a brown uh, grocery bag and in it and, and she had a big white like a like a beautiful white shirt like of her father's and she put it on and she was really thin and she had um, straight uh, bangs black hair you know jet black hair and straight bangs and straight hair and freckles and just utterly confident, utterly posed person, Uh, poised person excuse me. She was, she struck a pose and she was very poised. So she put the, the big shirt on and she took and there was like a table in front of her. Like she knew there would be a table and I think she might have even spread like a cloth on the table. She had like a little helper like a magician's helper and she put an empty Heinz ketchup bottle on the table. And then she took out a ripe tomato. And there were titters in the audience of the little girls there because the most famous advertisement at the time, the commercial on television for Heinz ketchup, was there was a, a, a bottle on the table. It was empty. And they said, Heinz ketchup puts the taste of the tomato inside the bottle. And it like went into the bottle. And so we were all just like, well, no, Robin can't do that. I mean, this is not television. We're not stupid. And so she stood there, and she took the tomato, and she took the bottle, and she like rolled up her sleeves, and she took the tomato, and she made sure Oh, she might have passed it around to the girls in the front row, sitting like Indians. We hand it back, and then blew on the top of the bottle, make sure it was empty. And she puts the tomato on top of the bottle, and she takes her palm, and she squishes it and it splatters all over everything, all over her shirt, all over this. And Robin takes the tablecloth, and she wipes off her face, and she goes, well, I don't even know. We were just all applauding because it was so funny. We were all in stitches. It's all anybody talked about the whole rest of fifth grade. The next day, came a game, and Robin was the leader of the game, which she, because she was the most popular. And the game was, you had to, and I remember this, you had to sit under a green army blanket, it was kind of scratchy wool, and then the rules of the game were, you had to promise to obey Robin, which I did, and you had to uh, be under the blanket, which I was, and it was kind of in a corner of this wooden bunk, and you had to, to do what she said. So she said, oh, it's really hot, it's really hot, it's so hot, we're all so tired, we're all so bored, I order you to take off a piece of clothing and pass it to me from under, and pass it to me. Oh no, she didn't say clothing, Oh, I just gave it away. She said, I order you to take something off. So I might have taken off a shirt or I might, I don't even remember. I was just mortified under there and I knew I was gonna lose this game and I really liked to win things. And I didn't know how to become popular there. Eventually, I think they heard me sniffling. I was probably down to my undershirt. Um, I'd skipped a grade, so I was a year younger than everyone, and I only wore an undershirt, maybe, you know, and it was really hot under the blanket and really scratchy, and I knew whatever the secret was to this game, I was losing it. And they heard me sniffling, and Robin whisked the blanket off just the way she'd whisked off the tablecloth, and she folded it, and she walked out of the room, and over her shoulder she said, Silly, you had to only take the blanket off. Thank you.
0: Okay, please welcome to the stage, Linda Olson.
3: Hi everybody. So my name's Linda Olson Graham. Um, And I was, my first memory when I was a child, I was packing a suitcase I was probably four or five years old. I was in the kitchen and my brother said, where are you going? And I said, I'm leaving, I just have to go. I mean, that's, so that, (laughs) you know, that's one of my earliest memories. Um, The summer before I graduated from high school, I lived in Lake George and the winter of 1967. So I'd been out of high school, you know, I'd been in Lake George the summer before. I had plans to visit my friend in Minnesota. And my dad passed on. Um, my mom encouraged me to go to Minnesota. Anyway, I went I came back and a friend asked me if I wanted to come to Provincetown And I arrived April 1st 1967 We had IDs and there was a buzz around town that the little bar at the a house was opening and I met the bartenders um, The next winter I was in Key West for a little while and one of the bartenders was at a party um, He walked me home and we ended up spending three weeks together. We like soulmates. And I didn't try to tie him down. He used to captain charter boats in the Grenadines in the winter and work in the Little Bar in the summer. And I spent time in the spring and fall with him. I saw a very quiet side of his personality that no one else saw. And when I was 22, I had an apartment on Alden Street. Um, I had a golden retriever and a cat and a station wagon fixed up so I could sleep in the back. And I was going to drive to Key West. And I spent—I had a yard sale, spent a few weeks with my mom in Worcester, and she didn't want me to go by myself. I was. Tease and say, I don't know why, but um, she insisted that I call this gentleman. And we were going to drive straight through. I came to pick him up here in town, and we ended up spending three weeks going down the Blue Ridge Parkway. We spent a week in North Carolina with a buddy of his. Um, we arrived in Key West. He went back up to North Carolina to help his friend with a project, and I actually found the dog dead. It was an accident. And my, I mean, I knew the father golden retriever was my double date in the backseat of a Camaro for a 1,000 miles around New England. I was crushed. And my mother said, and it was really what saved me, when you lose something that means a lot to you, it just makes a space for something even greater to come in and take its place. And the guy came back and just let me cry in his arms for days. And he was off in the Caribbean. He visited me a few times during the winter. Um, he was already up here, and he called and asked if he could fly to Florida and drive north with me. And while we were driving north, he asked me to live with him. And I really, I thought in my mind, this will be fun for a couple of weeks, and then I can go to Martha's Vineyard. I was going to spend the summer in Martha's Vineyard, true story. Um, and we had plans to drive to Mexico that fall, and my car started burning oil. And he went up the Cape one day and came back and said he bought a $2,000 special. It was a 28-foot Swedish-built sloop. And we traded my car to a guy named Ted Box, who some people may remember. And we sailed down the Inland Waterway a couple of months. You know, it was just amazing. And we arrived in Florida, um, and we actually were in a tornado near Cape Kennedy. Totaled the boat with us on board it. Um, And it's, you know, other stories I've told. I've actually had three near-death experiences, and I don't panic. No one knows how they're going to respond, and something inside me just goes whoomp. And I got so focused, and I did exactly what he told me to do. The boat landed in a foot of water. When the Coast Guard came along and tried to pull the boat off the sand, um, they pulled another boat off, they floated away, and it was discovered that the boat had landed on a stump and stove a big hole in the bottom of the boat. So we both we went off, and we came back to Provincetown on... He had seen an all-teak 45-foot catch for sale the summer before in Sail Magazine. And he went to the patrician and came back and he said, this catch is for sale again. I'm going to fly to Florida and take it for a sea trial. And he came back four days later and told me he bought the boat. And we spent two months behind the broker's house and went on a six-month cruise to... It's magic. It's really almost like magic. A a six-month cruise to Haiti and Panama and Colombia. And then... While we were together, we sailed probably 10 or 11,000 miles together at five knots, which is like five miles an hour. We even sailed offshore and anchored off the boat slip one summer here and both worked in town and then sailed from here to the Virgin Islands. So fast forward, and I'm almost finished. Um, I mean, it's 40 years later, and I'm older. And I moved back to town in 2011, 2010, the fall of 2011, someone said, have you ever thought of doing any boat work again? I said, oh my gosh, I'd do boat work in a heartbeat. I was living in Wellfleet, driving, I had an Isuzu rodeo, driving to Provincetown. My car didn't pass inspection, and I could hear my mother's words, when you lose something that means a lot to you, it makes the space for something even greater. I had taken a 5,000 mile road trip before I moved back here, 37 miles short of 5,000 miles. So I thought, I wonder what's going to happen. And I actually biked for three weeks from Wellfleet here, Boundbrook Island Road and on 6A, and when I was out on the boat, I saw a couple rowing in, and I thought, oh my gosh, they're doing what I did in my 20s. They just look like sailors. And I was walking up and down Commercial Street looking for a place to live, and I passed the couple I had seen rowing in, and we talked for an hour, and they invited me to sail with them, and I actually sailed three months to the Bahamas with them on a junk rig schooner. So there's a little more to the story than that, but it's just, you know, that's, it's, Wanderlust is just, I'd I'd go again in a heartbeat. So thank you for letting me share that, yeah.
1: Put your hands together for Jill Tidelman. I want to
4: tell the story of my family road trip when I was 14. Can you hear me? Um, <clears throat> we lived in Connecticut. And I was 14, my brother was 10. It was supposed to be a family of vacation. It was really a business trip for my parents to visit all the suppliers for their furniture stores. So free places to stay, basically. Um, So we we set off from Connecticut, and uh, the first stop I remember was really a a big political awakening for me, or I should say more than that. Um, My father sold uh, wrought iron and rattan and redwood and all those things in Connecticut that people were buying for pools and big yards, and that's what he was doing. And so we went to uh, Birmingham, and we stayed with these people that owned this wrought iron factory, and we visited it. And it was... I suddenly I made this instantaneous, sudden connection that this stuff that we sold in Connecticut was being made by other people who were sweating and suffering to make it. Uh, <clears throat> and I was, wasn't really that politically aware yet, but I just remember being completely shocked at that experience. Um, the trip was really pretty bad uh, no, but we didn't get along very well. We didn't get along very well at home, but crammed into a car uh, for six weeks um, with the destinations, these places that nobody had any interest in particularly. It was just to get a free place to stay. So we we went, we were somewhere in Minnesota with some family that we nobody knew what to say to us. It was not a good thing. Um, <clears throat> we we were my father didn't like to make reservations when we didn't have a free place to stay he would think maybe somebody would come up and offer us something i don't know and so we fought a lot about my mother was always fighting with him and my brother and i were we were enemies we were fighting over the back seat and the space in the back seat basically i slept pretty much across the country and back in the back seat hogging it i remember them saying jill wake up it's the grand canyon I would wake up, look out, very nice, go back to sleep again. Um, my father was a friendly guy; he made lots of friends, and we went to um, Yellowstone. We were going to have a camping experience, except, of course, we had a motel somewhere near there. And then we went to a uh, there was a square dance at Yellowstone, and I was in a bad mood. I, I, once in a while, I would save up enough money to enough quarters to call one of my friends back home and complain. But I mean, I was trapped. I was miserable. I. Uh, you know, so we, the, the square dance was going to be a big event, we went and uh, these locals were doing all these square dances and my father gets this cowboy to invite me to dance and I, I knew a little bit of you did square dancing in gym in those days so I knew a few things And <clears throat> I'm out in this thing and the guy had he was, I couldn't even see, his, he was so tall and he had fringe on his thing and he was doing all these things and I was pretty much humiliated which my father thought it was pretty funny it was kind of entertaining for him Um, so, a lot of things happened on this trip, and we were, you know, more and more miserable, and every night I remember, if we were, wherever we were, I was thinking I could sneak out, I could, I could go to the train, I could take a bus, I could get home, I could get out of here. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I, there were a few times when I actually thought about doing it. I was so mad at one point, because I was, somebody wasn't understanding my need for privacy or something. Um, so, um, then we got, we were, there were, we were somewhere in the Midwest, and there were these signs, and it said, you must see the Corn Palace. Has anybody ever traveled across country? Has anybody here ever been to the Corn Palace? Somebody actually, you have, what state is it in? Somewhere, yeah. So, <laughs> I don't know. There might be more than one, I should look it up. Um, the, my mother was really very, she was culturally starved at this point, and, and so, Um, Oh, I left out Las Vegas. That was good. Las Vegas, my father gambled. My mother and I went shopping. She bought me a bathing cap that had, it was, to me, it was the most exquisite thing I'd ever bought in my entire life. It had petals, many rows of petals. And I remember being out at the pool with my bathing cap, you know, kind of trying to attract somebody, but, you know, it wasn't working. Um, We were just, it wasn't, it wasn't good. So... Then there was the sign for the Corn Palace and my mother said, we're gonna go, it's historic. We had one of those triptychs, triple A triptychs. You flipped it. Oh, in this town, you can see the potato factory. You know, In this town, you can see the, the model of you know, somebody's sombrero or something, I don't know. So, so we, were, we, we were gonna go to the Corn Palace and my father's complaining because it's out of the way to the next uh, pr- free place we had to stay. Um, but we got there. And we were standing online line and there's a tour and there's the corn palace girl. And she takes you in and you go in and she, and she goes, welcome to the corn palace. <laughs> this was built in 1875 out of several different colors of native corn. And then you see these murals and you go by and you see the Indians, the same thing we have here, showing the people in whatever state that is, how to make corn, build, plant corn. <laughs> I'm very bad at American history, very bad <laughs> to this day. And, and so at a certain point, we realized that this woman has memorized this speech. She has no affect whatsoever. She's just telling it like she's reading a cereal box or something. And my father sort of nudges me like this and my brother sort of nudges my mother. And we realized if you stop and you ask her a question, she answers the question and then she has to go back to the beginning of the speech. <laughs> she goes, so my father goes, uh, what was the date of that Indian war again? And she goes, Welcome to the Corn Palace. <laughs> so we got into it a little. And the other, and, and the other visitors, they didn't seem to care. They didn't I don't know. So then my brother goes, um, what did you say about the Indians again? So we did this. And and we and and we came out in the car. We got in the car. Timing is good, thank you, Vanessa. And all of a sudden, we were all kind of a little lighthearted and happy. And you know, there's nothing that brings a family together so much as humiliating somebody else. It really, it brought us together in, 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 a, in a deep way, for me, really. I mean, in that moment, I loved my brother. He could have my comic books. I, I, I didn't want to leave my family, at least for another couple of hours. And, and, and the whole rest of the day, we were going, on the right, you will see a ladies room. Someone in this car needs to go. Thank you very much.
0: I would like to welcome to the stage Paulie
5: from Long Island. So the summer of 1976 I was 16 years old, totally sexually innocent and living in a split level with my parents in North Massapequa. Hey, Massapequa, (laughs) all right. You and me and the Baldwins and Jerry Seinfeld, right? Yeah. So uh, my friend Dave, David Howe, was 17. Uh, He already had a girlfriend and a motorcycle and he had some cousins in New Smyrna Beach, Florida. So our road trip was gonna be hitchhiking down to Florida. So the story begins, on Interstate 95 when I first noticed the first big billboard for South of the Border. Anyone know what I mean, right? Um, so it's a, it's a uh, roadside attraction on the border of North and South Carolina and the signs begin up in Northern New Jersey. And, uh, <laughs> and they literally they tell you how, well they tell you first of all there's a funny picture of a horribly racist stereotype Mexican, a big sombrero, a burro, and then two things, uh, a, a bad pun, um, like uh, uh, you never saw such a place. And sausage was sausage. You never saw such a place. And then it told you the distance, like 417 miles, right? And, uh, and you see, we would see a series of these as we progressed on our hitchhiking adventure. Um, but that summer 1976, I, I felt like I was at an important point in my life. I was metamorphizing. I was going from uh, the nerdy theater kid whose idea of a fun time was I had this velvet tuxedo I'd put on and go to my great-grandmother's nursing home and do magic shows. <laughs> and, and, and I was good, I was good. Um, but even then, I knew there was something else, there was, there's something else. and. Uh, <laughs> So uh, I had had glimpses of it. I had learned how to roll a joint and smoke it just just a week or two before. Um, I took the LIRR into Greenwich Village and hung out in Washington Square Park. Uh, And my friend Henry Hank Schlankhorn told me how backstage at Guys and Dolls he had put his hand under Joy Jorgensen's shirt the whole way and she let him do it. I'm like, something was about to happen. I could feel it, I could feel it. (laughs) So we're out on I-95 and uh, we, with, our, with our sign with the multicolored magic markers on it saying Florida. And uh, uh, this big Buick careens across several lanes and comes to a screeching stop with gravel shooting up and uh, the car stops and, uh, and the guy rolls down his window and this, um, he's a skinny white guy, kind of pockmarked skin, crew cut. Uh, and he says, hi, I'm Bill. Uh, this here is a lane, it's our honeymoon. Come on in boys, so, okay. Adventure! I could feel it. <laughs> well, that was the first mistake. We get in the car. Now Elaine was uh, blonde, attractive, uh, and and quite obese. And uh, it turned out the Buick had been a gift from her her daddy, as she told us later, uh, for their honeymoon. Um, I knew this because shortly after getting in the car, uh, we're driving, and um, Bill he's like this, but he turns around, you know, totally, and he's got a um, he's got a Captain Morgan and Coke in, in one hand. <laughs> And a lucky strike, well, actually, and, and, he, and he says, you boys want to buy this car. And Elaine says, well, Bill, my daddy gave us this car. And he just says, shut up, Elaine. We go, oh, this, what, what, and that's so second mistake. We didn't say stop and get out of the car. <laughs> so we go a little further until um, uh, what ensues at that point is we get a flat tire. And uh, Bill says, Elaine, he stops, he goes, Elaine, can you get out and change the tire? <laughs> we like, so Dave and I get out to help, and uh, and Bill says, "No, you boys don't need to help." But we got out, we helped. And we change the tire. Uh, is that me? That alarm thing? No. Okay, good. <laughs> so okay, so we get uh, we we fix the tire. Bill gets out, uh, and he's got this menacing, scary look on his face. And he was like one of those badass, skinny, crew-cut white guys with any of the cigarettes in that sleeve, and and he has this. Br- brown paper bag that he's reaching his hand into and all of a sudden I'm thinking like good fellas like what's he and he's pulled something out of it I'm like oh we're dead and he pulls out this long cylinder and he says uh you want some Stucky's pecans right <laughs> all right whatever so we that's good okay. we get and we say we got to get out of this car but he says we're gonna go a little further and we're gonna stop at uh south of the border and uh, and, and, he, and he's like, why don't, why don't you all just stay with us? We're too drunk to do anything anyway. And Elaine's, but Bill, it's our honeymoon. Shut up, Elaine. <laughs> so we said, okay, here's the thing. When we get there, we'll get out of the car. We'll go take our sleeping bags and sleep outside. In the morning, if we're still there, you guys can pick us up and take us further down south. But he, they'd have none of that. They insisted we come in a room with them. And uh, the, it's a small... <laughs> yeah. It's a small room, Uh, there's a queen-size bed pushed up against the uh, the windows. Outside the window is the enormous sombrero that's blinking neon as it's dark right through the the Venetian blinds. So that's there, the bed's here, and and he tells us to sleep next to the closet over there in our sleeping bag. So we lay down and within moments, they're both snoring, right? Okay, we gotta sneak out, this is just too weird. Um, But we fall asleep. Uh, and wake up to t- two things uh, that are unmistakable. One is the sound of um, springs in a hotel m- uh, mattress, and then the visual was the uh, the, neon- the sombrero blinking neon like a strobe effect, as Bill was four feet in the air over on top of Elaine. lane. And uh, remember, I was still somewhat innocent at this time, and I was trying to figure out how normal this was, all this stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then my friend Dave says, this is weird, but in the morning, they won't be drunk, and they'll be, say, what are you guys doing here? We said, yeah, we, 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 that's going to be weird. We wake up the next morning. Uh, we shouldn't have been worried because uh, they were already awake. The TV was on with Wheel of Fortune, and Bill turns around and says, I got a question for you too." we We're going, uh-oh. He says, if Elaine lost some weight, I mean a lot of weight, would she look like Elka Summers there on the TV? I'm like, <laughs> Anyway, we got out of there then. Go to New Smyrna Beach. We had a little fa- vacation. I hitchhiked back on my own. Almost over here. I'm in Delaware, and um, I see I'm at, I'm at the entrance ramp on 95, hitching north, and there's this uh, girl my age, wearing a poncho, and she had a long braid, and she looked beautiful. And I just summoned up all the courage I had. I walked up to her and said, "You want to hitchhike together?" And she said because I'd been having trouble getting rides. She said, great idea, you sit on the guardrail, I'll hitchhike and they'll more likely pick up a girl and you can get in. So that's what happens, uh, we get a ride, we get in that station wagon, it's a uh, middle-aged black couple and um, the gentleman introduced himself as a, a Baptist preacher and his wife and they're heading uh, to a family reunion. So we get in the backseat of the station wagon and uh, it's getting dark at this point and the rain starts, and the windshield wipers are flapping, and I get a little drowsy. And this girl uh, leans against me with her poncho over over both of us, and we start just kind of getting drowsy in the back seat. Uh, About this point, uh, I feel her hand start creeping over a place where I've never had anyone put their hand. And I heard the sound of a zipper. And at that very moment, Mrs. Preacher uh, turns around, and she turns and faces me with a, a yellow cardboard box and say, uh, says, uh, would you all like a, a Stuckey's pecan candy? And, <laughs> and I swear, I didn't miss a beat, I just said, no, I'm good.
6: Put your hands together for Tristan. My father was a family man, the smartest person I ever met, a hardworking surgeon, colon and rectal surgeon, known by a select few as the Rear Admiral. <laughs> I didn't actually I didn't actually know about that till I was about 25, and that was that was a fun thing to find out. Um, so. He was also a world traveler and brought my sister and I and my mother on some incredible adventures. So in 1988, he said to my mother, somewhere warm with a casino, (laughs) he liked blackjack. So my mother, in cahoots with her sister, planned a trip to England for February school vacation. (laughs) Clearly not warm, but maybe he'd find a blackjack table. To add insult to injury, my aunt thought, well, while we're on that side of the Atlantic, why don't we hop a plane to Moscow (laughs) in February? Because nothing says family fun like a Cold War. <laughs> so we went. And my father, in a form of silent protest, had he had hundreds of baseball caps. And um, he had this one baseball cap. It was all white, foam trucker style, foam front mesh back. And uh, he had gotten it from a drug rep and across the front in, Neon green, it said Metamucil. <laughs> it also smelled like rotten fish. So that's the hat he chose to bring on the trip. My mother was, you know, not delighted. <laughs> but anyway... So we get to Moscow on a state-sponsored three-day propaganda tour, and it was an unforgettable trip. The architecture was gorgeous. The food was terrible. (laughs) Our guide slash government minder was strangely enthusiastic about all the marvelous things the Soviets had done. And to prepare for the trip, we had brought a lot of American things because the Soviets were starved for anything American. We brought Levi's jeans and Marlboro cigarettes and Juicy Fruit gum. And we traded for pins and lacquer boxes, tickets to the Moscow Ballet where we saw Cinderella. No, I'm sorry, Sleeping Beauty. It was you know one of those fairy tales. In any case, it was amazing. Um, So it was February and it was cold. And all of the smart Russians wore fur hats because you need them in the winter in Russia in February. Somewhere warm with a casino. So we were at the Russian Olympic ski jump facility, right? Because again, this is a state sponsored propaganda tour. And my father was still proudly wearing his Metamucil hat. And this man, this Russian man, wearing a beautiful fur hat, approached my father and, you know, because he didn't speak English and my father didn't speak Russian, um, you know, they did this little, this whole little, oh, oh, the thing and a hat and can I? So my father trades his Metamucil hat for this gorgeous Russian fur hat that kept him warm for the rest of the trip. And he just kind of had this smug look on his face. Like, look what I got. And we wondered if that poor guy ever figured out that Metamusil was not an American baseball team, but... A laxative. Thank you.
1: Put your hands together for Pat Medina!
7: I woke up one morning and I decided that the chaos that I was living in in the household was just becoming so predictable. I was bored and I should go on a great adventure. So, I said, sure, why not? This is an adventure I'm not telling anybody about. It's going to be my own, my very own adventure. So I go underneath my bed and there's a little cardboard suitcase. It was a lo- long time ago. And I snap it open and I put in, what do I need? My cardigan sweater with the little pearl buttons going down, cause you know, it might get cold, but it is summertime. I put a pair of socks in there just in case, you know, a pair of panties. Of course, I open up my cash register bank and I pour out all my money and I'm thinking, "Mm, how far can I get on this? So I decide I know where I'm going. First, I need provisions. So I take my little suitcase and grip it in my hands. I put my little jacket on. I go outside and I know I'm catching a bus. On the way to the bus, I stop at the store because I need some road food. So I go in the store and I get my road food, I come out. Sure enough, the bus is there. I get on this bus, I give him my money. Sit down on the back seat. I had the whole back seat to myself. I was like, yeah, this is the way to do it. I open up my suitcase to put my road food in there. And I realize, okay, that's enough. I have my chunky, you know, little chunky. I have a Milky Way. I got my Twizzlers and I got my very own can of Pepsi. I don't have to share this can of Pepsi with anybody. I don't even have to pour it in a glass first. I am eight years old and I am going on a great adventure. So I sit back on the bus. I'm chilling, I'm like loving every second and if anybody knows like Brooklyn, we're going from Brooklyn, we're going to Queens because I'm I'm looking for a bigger world. Okay, so I'm looking for a bigger world and I'm enjoying going down Cross Bay Boulevard in the backseat, woo, here we go. Not only am I going to Queens, I'm going to Rockaway. I am going to Rockaway Playland, <laughs> where life is going to be amazing. <laughs> so I ride the bus, I get all the way there, I get off the bus, I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like a tourist. <laughs> Here I am in Town. I was like a tourist with my little suitcase, my eight year old, tiny little peanut body. And I'm going, and I got a little bit of coin left in my pocket. I got my, my road food that I haven't touched, because it was too early to eat it yet. So I say, hmm, what do I want to do today? I want to go on the boardwalk. So I get on the boardwalk, and I'm walking back and forth on the boardwalk, back and forth. It's a big boardwalk, especially when you're eight. So I did that a few times, and I thought, we're not going to do anything boring. What time is it? It's not very late. So I say, "Okay, so I'm going to go underneath the boardwalk now because I was never allowed. So I go underneath the boardwalk. It was like, eh, meh, 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 a lot of dirty things. I'm looking for coins in the sand and everything. I decided I'm getting a little hungry. I break open the chunky. (laughs) So I eat that chunky, and I was good. So I'm sitting there, I start walking down, collecting shells and then throwing them out because I don't want to put them in my suitcase because, you know, it's got sand on it. (sighs) So after a while, it starts getting a little dark. I decide I'm going into the playland because the lights are streaming all over the place, the rides are going, the people are sitting in the boots, you know, with the darts and the balloons and all the games are going on, but there's very few people there. And I'm walking with my suitcase and kind of looking around like, this is not what I expected it to be. And suddenly, one of the gals in one of the booths, you know, with the water gun, with the horse racing thing, she looks and she grabs the microphone and she says, Runaway child, running wild. You better go back home where you belong. And I think to myself, oh my god, am I a runaway? I'm just on an adventure. And all the stories of being a runaway come back to me. All the little girls and the bad things that happened to them. Well, needless to say, I'm thinking milk carton. (laughs) No, I gotta go home. I gotta go home. I don't have enough money for the bus. What am I gonna do? The green line has stopped running anyway. So I say, I could walk the whole trail of the bus. So I start walking and it's getting darker and it's getting cold. And I come to the concrete bridge. And on the concrete bridge, there were lots of, like, derelicts hanging out, drinking beer, saying bad words. You know, Some of them were fishing. Some of them were homeless people, like, looking very scary, laying along the concrete bridge. And a car stops next to me. And a gal opens the window, and she says, we can't let you walk across the bridge on your own. Bad things can happen to little girls who run away and walk the bridge and I'm like, oh
4: my god, I am a runaway.
7: (laughs) (sighs) Can you please let us take you across the bridge? So she's pleading with me and something about her, you know, something about her, she reminded me of my Aunt Hetty. My Aunt Hetty's good people. And I make eye contact with her, like, looking at her, staring her down. She said, please, get in the back seat. We'll drop you off at the foot of the bridge. I said, ah, OK, because I was scared anyway. So I get in the car. They take me to the foot of the bridge. And she says, where are you going? We talked the whole way. Joe was in the driver behind the wheel. And her name was Marty. And we get to the foot of the bridge. And she says, can you let us take you home? And I was like, score. <laughs> she said, you know, we're good people. We're church people. And I said, well, Okay, so I give her my address and she looks at Joe and Joe says, I don't know where it is So they said well, you know, you might have to come back to the house with us. We'd live like right here I know right, but they were good people. They were church people (laughs) So I go back to their house they get in touch with my mom. They really did they got in touch with my mom They gave me a big nightgown to wear because my mom said yeah, keep her (laughs) bring her home tomorrow <laughs> they were nice people they were church people they did they were living in the house connected to the church they took care of the church I could have stayed with Joe and Marty they gave me macaroni and cheese and it was fine but she put a lot of garlic powder in there you just you know you just don't mess with craft <laughs> so I get... I get back to to the house the next day, and I walk in, and I'm like, oh, I'm searching deep shit now. And I walk up, and my mother says, you can go back to your room now. And I said, okay. So I give Marty and Joe, who couldn't have children, a little hug each. I give them a kiss. I thank them profusely. In my head, I'm saying, maybe they're gonna negotiate adopting me or something. (laughs) But I take my little suitcase, and my mother's like, and I go trudge into my bedroom, I sit down cross-leg on my bed, plop the suitcase, opened it up, ripped open that Milky Way, popped open that warm Pepsi, and I started drinking and eating and plotting my next adventure.
8: (laughs) Frank Campo. This all started, it all starts about 1976 when I get a job as a janitor at um, the Stoll's department store in downtown Boston. Um, Do you remember Stoll's? No. (laughs) Anyway, it was sort of right between Filene's and Mesh. And so then after high school, I went into college and they promoted me to a salesman. So with that, I, I was in school all the time, being, being a salesman, blah, 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 but we had these professional window decorators that really weren't that good. And, well, I didn't think so, so I had to stick my nose in there, and all of a sudden, I was the window decorator. <laughs> and so Downtown Crossing always had these themes. One was the King Tut theme. One was the Nefertiti theme. And, and then all of a sudden, the big one that came around was the Orient Expressed. And that was everything that became Asian in the downtown area. So we used to all go to this one supply store. And I, I knew most of these these uh, decorators from uh, Filene's and Jordan Marsh, And we used to buy all the same stuff. And But at the end, like the Orient Expressed lasted for God, probably over a year. But they were always bringing things back and taking things back. So they used to give me a lot of stuff. So my apartment looked like Jordan Marsh just threw up. It was, it was pretty bad. So then all of a sudden, I get accepted to grad school in Chicago. And so I just thought, how am I gonna get all this stuff back to Chicago? And my family's like, you're not taking this shit with you. And it's like, oh, I have to, I have to. So I end up renting a pretty big truck one of those trucks that you actually pull out the, uh, the ramp. So, because I had a lot of stuff. So my friend Tom and I decide we're going to do a road trip from Boston to Chicago. So our first stop was Buffalo. And that was okay. But it was hard to hide this truck. It was enormous. So we spend the night in, um, what did I say? Buffalo. And um, we said afterwards, you know what? Let's go to Niagara Falls. It's not, that's not that far from here. So, okay, so we go to, we're go driving up, going to Niagara Falls. We come to the American border. Hey guys, how you doing? Good, good, you have an identification? Sure, okay, fine, have a nice trip. And that was it. So we go to Niagara Falls. We did the thing with the raincoats and, and it, was, it was real cutesy cutesy. And then all of a sudden, we come to the Canadian border and the guy says, what's in the truck? And I said, oh, nothing. And he said, that's an awfully big truck, there's gotta be something in there. So he said, lift up, lift up the back. And when he saw all this shit, he was like, oh my God, where are you going? I said, I just got I got accepted to school in Chicago. I'm going to my new apartment with all this stuff. And he says, Do you have receipts for everything here? And I said, What are you talking about? They said, well, didn't you have to show receipts for, you know, when you first enter the country? I said, no, they just let us in we want to see receipts. We want to see everything that's back there. I said, go ahead. So all of a sudden, the Orient Express comes out of that back of that truck. It was just, there they they were, they was the bamboo, there were kimonos, They were, they were um, the, um, the oriental umbrellas, the lanterns, everything was coming out. And then all of a sudden you hear, oh no and it was the King Tut collection. <laughs> so they take everything out and it was like, it was almost like watching one of those old movies when they just discovered Tut's tomb and they're all coming out with the artifacts, you know, and it was always oh, hysterical. So then we, we finally believe and then the guy says, I hope you guys learned a very, very valuable lesson. And my friend Tom's like, yeah, not to go to Canada. So, <laughs> So then we get to Chicago, we're dropping everything off, and people are just looking at us, taking all this stuff into this apartment. It, was, it wasn't a big apartment. And and it was all the, the Asian stuff, the Egyptian stuff, all that stuff. So the next day I'm on the elevator, and they thought I was just one of the people that was just helping drive the truck. So one woman says to the other woman, she says, Did you hear an ambassador? Did we think an ambassador moved in. <laughs> He had all this Asian and Egyptian artifacts, so (laughs) that was a. (laughs) Put
1: your hands together for Steve DeRoche! So
9: when I was a kid, I used to go to two very different kinds of summer camps. One was pretty traditional canoeing archery. The other is what I now call um, nerd camp. We would take enrichment classes. It'd be marine biology, astronomy, things like that. And so when I was 10 years old at this camp, I took um, French language and culture. And one day, the instructor says, does anybody know who Joan of Arc is? And I raise my hand and I go, yeah, she's on Knott's Landing. (laughs) So. She looks at me confused, she was from France, and she's like, what? I said, Joan of Arc, she's on Knott's Landing. So she starts to giggle, and she goes, no, honey, Joan of Arc, I'm like, yeah, Knott's Landing, I watch it with my grandmother, like. So she starts to tell the story of Joan of Arc, and I was raised Catholic, I was an altar boy, that other camp I went to was a Catholic day camp, so this story is starting to sound vaguely familiar to me. But did you ever have one of those moments where clearly you were wrong, but you're like, screw it, I'm gonna double down. (laughs) So she's trying to tell me who Joan of Arc is. I was like, look, lady, I don't know who you're talking about, but the Joan of Arc I know, she's on Knott's Landing. (laughs) So she can't finish the class, she's laughing. The day comes, my mother comes to pick me up, and she's like, wait, 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 and she tells my mother the story. My mother laughs all the way home. We get home, she tells my dad, my dad left, my grandparents, my sister, the whole neighborhood. Like, it was this thing. Stevie thought Joan of Arc was on Knott's Landing. (laughs) Nine years go by. I'm 19, I'm a sophomore in college. The year prior, my sister had won the Miss Massachusetts pageant and was in the Miss America pageant in Atlantic City. So, now I'm in my dorm room and we're chatting and... It's September, and the pageant's coming up. And I said, Lee, you know when, we, when you were in it, we had, like, we had so much fun. There's all these parties, and there's a parade, and it's this whole week of things. And she's like, oh, I really wish that I could have done that. Like I had fun, but I was nervous and focused. And, and I said, well, why don't we go on a road trip? To, why don't we just go? We'll hop in the car tomorrow, and we'll go to Atlantic City. We'll have, we'll have a lot of fun. We'll have this road trip. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she picks me up in the next morning. And um, I went to Wheaton College, which is where my sister went. So she was really helpful. She would tell me like, which professors to really seek out, which classes to take. And over those nine years, I had taken a lot of French, so much French that the school wouldn't let me take it for my foreign language requirement. I had to take a completely other one. So we're trying to figure out should I take German, Italian, what have you? And then she turns and says, Hey, you remember when you thought Joan of Arc was on Knott's Landing? And we laugh about it all the way down the Garden State Expressway. We get to Atlantic City, and we check into the hotel, and we're in the lobby to go out, and who walks into the lobby but the patron saint of France herself, Joan Van Ark. <laughs> and I, I turn around, I'm like, holy shit, did you, that's Joan Van Ark? Like, we were just talking about her, like, yeah. And so Joan Van Ark goes to the bathroom, and so I'm waiting outside, and I ambush her when she comes out, and I'm like, Oh my God, Joan Van Ark, funny story. And my hands are flapping, and I start (laughs) to have this out-of-body experience that's like, just shut up and run away. Stop, (laughs) stop talking to this woman. Like, she does not care, and you are humiliating yourself. I do not stop, and I keep talking, my hands are flapping, blah, blah, blah. And I have her pinned against the wall. She had on a a fabulous white pantsuit, and she's standing against the wall like this, holding her purse. And uh, when I finish, she just goes, it was very nice to meet you, and walks away. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, why did I do that? And so I said, you know, I learned that, look, living here in Provincetown or wherever I've lived in the world, if I see a famous person, I never talk to them. They don't care what I have to say. They have nothing to say to me. Um, But I think that I also learned something else, and that I can't be the only one who has made this mistake. I mean, Joan of Arc, Joan Van Arc. And so I looked it up, and Joan Van Ark is 76 years old, and historians generally agree that Joan of Arc was about 19 when she was burned at the stake. I don't care if the casting is wrong. You want to see Joan Van—I don't care if she's 110 and an iron lung. You want to see her play Joan of Arc. I know you do. <laughs>
0: Okay, please welcome to the stage, Jerry. Yeah. In
10: 1988, I was 20 years old. I was working at the Bradford down here, and I was in the season. It was September, and I was living with a guy who I initially hated because I'd met him on the basketball court right over at Howland Street, and he had a Notre Dame T-shirt on. He said, "Hey, play football, at Notre Dame." Yeah, I played DB. And then after a few months, I go, wait a minute, you're playing for a Division One school. You shouldn't you be in two days? Oh yeah, I was just lying. So that was '86. I had just come back from Louisville playing football, so I said, "I hate the guy. He's a liar." <laughs> two years later, I needed a place to stay, and he had a place to hang out—a room. His girlfriend had just gone to college, mine had just gone to college, and so I was living with him until, you know, trying to work at uh, the, uh, the Bradford until, you know, figure out what I was going to do because I came up here, so I wasn't going back to school. And so um, he goes, hey, I got a buddy that I joined the Marine Corps with. He's down in Tustin in uh, Southern California. Let's go to California. I say, hey, that's cool. I've never been to California. Let's go. So we got a PB bus and we get it to the airport and this doesn't happen anymore. We walk right up to the, uh, the ticket agent or the line there and just buy two one-way tickets right there at the spot and walk to the gate. And there's people, families there greeting people at the gate, I was just remembering that I'm like, wow, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, and so we get on a plane and we fly to LAX and there's a there was a five-year-old kid named Jeffrey on there that no one will ever forget on that whole plane ride. And um, funny thing, we get to uh, LAX and we're getting out and Corbin Burns, I don't know if people remember Corbin Burns, and he was coming out with this gaggle of stewardesses and we're waiting for our friend to come pick us up from town hey man, that's Corbin Burns. And so i like, yeah, yeah, let's go over there. Let's get an autograph, and I didn't have any paper on me. I have my paper, social security card. And I go in and pick in the limo. Hey, can you sign my, my can you give me an autograph? He said, yeah, he looks around, you got a pen? Uh, no, <laughs> he gave me the weirdest look. <laughs> okay, here, I'll sign it. So anyway, we looking. We go down to Southern California because we're looking for jobs. So we're down in Tustin, and he takes to Laguna Beach and takes us around, and we're looking around, and say, okay, we don't have a car, and we go, we're not gonna be able to make it down here riding a bus, trying to get a job down here. It's like, okay, I got a buddy up in Oklahoma, I mean, uh, in uh, Oakland, they're on the Berkeley border. We're gonna go up there and see him Him and his girlfriend, I met him in in P-Town, they're living out there now. So okay, so we go, okay, we're not gonna stay here in Southern California, so we get on the train. And if I see Rain Man, that train station, that's in Santa Ana, that Adobe building with the train station, so that's the one where we went. And uh, my buddy sees this girl in the train station he said that we made eye contacts. Uh, they're going to Seattle. We're going to be on the train way behind them. Anyway, we're going back and forth. We get on our car and we take off and St. Louis Obispo, the last car stops, and all this. And so we get on the train, he sees this girl, and we're just walking through the train. Oh, here she is right here. I'm like, oh God, okay, she's sitting by herself. So we come back and he sits with her, and this that's the seats are staggering on these Amtrak trains. So I go, I'll go sit with this guy who's sitting by himself. And there's a woman back behind us who was crocheting and so I said with well, this guy he's got half a brain he had epilepsy and he really did have half a brain and he was just we we're having, trying to have a conversation he's talking about taking pictures of things he was you know about his adventure he'd come from all the way from Chicago he's going across the country and on, on the air track and so I'm here talking to him all of a sudden I see my buddy go downstairs because the bathrooms are downstairs this girl goes downstairs I'm like oh my god so that's fine you know I'm 20 he's a little older so uh, I'm talking to this guy, and all of a sudden my buddy comes up and he's trying to be cool. All right, he's 20, early 20, so he comes up and he hits me. He's trying to be cool. And he goes, a fucker! <laughs> I'm a bugger. I'm like, oh my God, I'm mortified. I'm like, I'm looking around. No one heard him, did he? Oh my God. So I go back and sit with him. I'm trying to tell him, I'm kind like, now, he's freaking out. The woman in the background puts her index fingers together like this and does this to us. It's, I'm like, oh my God. So anyway, we make it up to Oakland, and our friends pick us up. And uh, they've been there for a couple of years. They lived on Telegraph Avenue right near Berkeley and on the Berkeley-Oakland border. And um, they want to take us around and show us uh, San Francisco. So he's got this old rusted Fairmont fair that he had driven out that he'd been beating. There's a hole in the dashboard. He, every time a song comes he beats the board. That's the kind of guy he was. So we go and we stop on H Street. And he said, like, yeah, this is H Street. We're gonna go walk down hate Street. I'm like, okay, so we're walking down H Street and it's flooded with people. And every once in a while you go back corner and someone says, KGB. KGB killer green bud, but we had our own, so it was fine. So anyway, there, there was a, burn, a liquor store I burned down on a corner, so it was it was still smoldering a little bit, and we walked down the end of H Street, and it's Stanyard Street, and that's Golden Gate Park. that goes all the way out to the ocean, so we're sitting there, and we walk around the park a little bit, and we smoke, and we're sitting down, and someone was telling the story, and we're just sitting there, and we're looking, and no one said anything until someone said, did the lights just go out? So it was a blackout right in front of us. And we're like, oh my God, I thought it was just me. It was, well, it's a blackout. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So we started walking down the street toward the car. and My other buddy guys just walking down the street just screaming out, loot, loot, loot. So anyway, so we're there. Oh my God, I'm not gonna make it. <laughs> All right, so we're there and we're trying to get, uh, re- get jobs. And so we get up every morning. Hey, let's grab a, you know, we're gonna get up every morning. We grab a basketball. Every day, go to the same uh, McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, or whatever. Hey, you guys hiring? Okay, we'll be back. We find this circuit of basketball places. We play and play basketball all day, and come back and like, no, we didn't get jobs. A month later, we have to leave. So then we get a drive-away car, and we, uh, which is a company that you just pay an in insurance and you just pay for gas and you drive away. So it was an Audi Fox. So we're driving and we're on eighty. And I say, hey, we don't want to just keep going on 80. We want to get on 70 and go through Denver. So we stop and say, hey, let's just take this road and this little red thing takes us right down to 70. So we did that. And we were hungry. We stopped in some restaurant. They waited for like half hour to give us menus. That was fine. So then we get to Denver. And we stop and we got going to take a shower. And I go, OK, let's go find a club. So we drive around, no trip advisors just driving around looking for a club. There's this club with barbed wire and black things underneath the freeway. We go in there, he meets some guy. He says, Oh, yeah, we got to hook up." Like, what kind of hookup? We're gonna go back to this guy's place. I said, for what? It's like okay. So we go back over his place and there's these been a ton of women there, and they go, He's why are we going? Why are we here? He goes, They got tickets to the uh the Broncos game three days from now. I'm like, and it's like All we gotta do is stay here. And do what? Says, you gotta pick one. It's like, look, I'm gonna be in that car in in about an hour. You can come with me or not. You can say so. Long story short, we left. But that was a nice trip. Thank you very much. I know this this is too long.
6: Put your hands together for Lance Eden. Lance.
1: So my story starts with, oh my God, I killed Dagny. Now, I say this while in a loving embrace with uh, a romantic partner, um, whose first reaction, of course, is, who is Dagny? Um, Not quite the place to be. Uh, And so I should back up, and my day started in Peabody, Massachusetts, and it's spelled Peabody, but we call it Peabody, uh, which some people think is puberty, which is a whole other process I'm still dealing with, but um, it started there, I was, it was a Friday morning, I had gotten up, um, I had got my stuff together, and I had bug bombed my apartment. I, I was bug bombing it as I left, not while I was still there. Um, And I was left to work, and after work, I was driving six hours down to Pennsylvania to this uh, person who I just shouted in their face saying, oh my God, I killed Dagny. So, you know, I left work, did 95, 90, 84, 80, um, and those are more the speeds than the actual highways because the further you get from the house, you know, from your state, like the slower you wanna go. But I get, you know, there I'm like having this epiphany at like 9.30, 10 o'clock at night. And of course she's having this other epiphany of like, who is this person? And I have to back up and be like, it's my pet scorpion, right? So I left my apartment bug bombing it and I have a pet scorpion. Um, I am not the brightest bulb in, (laughs) in the bunch. So, you know, throughout the rest of this weekend, I'm sitting there, you know, everything's, you know, hanging out, spending time, blah, 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 doing all these things. But in the back of my head, I'm like... All right, my my pet scor- my no longer pet scorpion is dead. Right. Um, so I get home Sunday evening, like I come racing back up, and you know, like I'm flooring it up the highway, and like, you know, I'm in my early 20s, so you know, I've got like the sound cranked up and listening to my audio books, and, because uh, <laughs> I'm a nerd. Um, and I'm pretty sure I was, given the name Dagny, I'm pretty sure I was listening to Atlas Shrug, and that was a phase I got over. <laughs> Don't worry, it's more now Toni Morrison and Alice Walker, but, you know, I was a dude in my 20s. So I get home, and, you know, I get, I get in there, into my room, and, and I look at the, the uh, glass cage, or whatever the hell, tank, there we go, and I'm like, Ooh, I'm like, I I think she's still alive. I don't even know if it was a he or she. I just decided. Um, And there's a little life there. And so the first trick is, of course, I've got to get the thing out so that I can clean the tank. And I manage that. I forget exactly how. And then I replace the sand. And I put the water in and stuff. And I get some new crickets. And you know, that night, everything seems okay. And I wake up Monday morning. And I go and I look in the tank. And there's Dagny. Face down in the water dish. Right, so I get to work, and where I worked was surrounded by, it was a very fascinating place for a story for another time where I was surrounded by many evangelical fundamental Christians. So I get to work, and I'm like, so this is my weekend, I just forced a uh, scorpion to commit suicide. right? Because, I mean, scorpions are right up there with cockroaches. Those are the things that are going to survive a nuclear war, and I got it to commit suicide. So I'm there, and I'm telling this to co-workers, and, you know, they're telling they're going to pray for me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is not what I really need to hear from these people, but whatever. Um, so I get home, you know, this whole day I've been like tormented by the fact that, like, I, I, I sent this creature to its misery and death, um, but it's not dead. It's now just standing in the water dish. And for the preceding, you know, two or three weeks of its life continues to like hang out in the water dish. Um, and all I can think is like this was a whole metaphor of my 20s, uh, in that like I was you know, racing along and fully taking advantage of that wonder lust, um, emphasis on the wander and the lust. Uh, and through it all like destroying or, I shouldn't say destroying, but like significantly doing harm to people in and around me, that didn't end up being that bad, but clearly it left its impact. So that's my story.
0: Dennis Minsky, wrapping up the show.
11: So I only decided to do this this morning because I travel, I saw travel, I, I haven't traveled. I was in Truro last week and uh, <laughs> I'm going to Wellfleet on Wednesday. But, but but then I thought, hey, wait a minute, you did. In 1993, I went to Borneo and Bali. That's pretty exotic, right? So. Um, that's what I'll talk about. So I went to Borneo uh, as part of a research team to to study the effects of logging on peat swamp rainforests. forests. Uh, now, I'm not going to go into all of what we did, um, but my cabin mate sat up in the middle of the night. He was an entomologist from uh, Britain, and he's wow, he got this six-inch cockroach. I think it's new to science. I mean, there are bugs everywhere, and it was pretty... Pretty creepy, but one thing we did uh, experience was an orangutan in the wild. We found, we saw this beautiful animal, and they are beautiful. F- hair like, a, like an Irish setter, you know, just beautiful uh, russet red hair. And it's not matted or anything, it's beautiful. So this was a male, and we followed him all day. And you know what a, an orangutan does at the end of uh, every day? he or she, he prepared a sleeping platform. And what they do, they have six foot arms, you need a little science education here, and they just go to the top of a tree and start breaking branches, smashing them down, and then here's an orangutan, you know, mashing it down, getting it nice. And uh, that's, that's where he sleeps. And then the next night, he'll go a mile away and do it somewhere else. And the rainforest is so resilient that, you know, doesn't matter. So we stuck around. We stayed all night out there, which is another story. And in the morning, we were there to see this orangutan, and he's sitting on the edge of this platform. Looks like Rodin, like the Thinker, you know. And he's gazing out over the canopy. And if you gave him a mug of coffee and a newspaper, it would have looked just like. So we're we're like really this this is spiritual moment, and then plop, plop, plop. <laughs> well, luckily we weren't right underneath the thing. So I went to a symposium in tropical uh, ecology last week in Boston, and I spoke with people who work in that very area, Kalimantan province, gone. Palm oil plantation. A woman's worked 30 years with orangutans. reduction, 90%. So, now that I've cheered you up, (laughs) you're in Borneo, you might as well go to Bali. So I flew to Bali, I'm staying in this little town called Peliatan, near Ubud, some of you may have been there. And um, beautiful, beautiful place, Bali is beautiful. I meet this couple, uh, British couple, um, uh, Daphne and Nick, and they say, hey, we're going to Mount Batur. We're going to Mount Batur. You want to come with us? We're going to Mount Batur. We're going to climb Mount Batur. OK, I'll climb Mount Batur. So they have a vehicle, and we're driving through the beautiful countryside. You, you've got the the, uh, the the guy with the water buffalo you know, uh, plowing his field. You've got the little kids herding the, the, the ducks with a stick, just like right out of the book. You've got women, I can't bend over, but scything, you know, the grass, it's just beautiful, um, and there we see Mount Batur in the distance, and then it gets closer and it gets closer, and finally we're in this this parking lot as close as you can get to it. We had a guidebook and we knew where, we thought we knew what we were doing. So there are a few people in the parking lot, and um, we're standing there, we're looking, and this uh, very nice looking young man comes up and says, "Hello." my name is Neomar, and I will be your guide. Well, we had seen in the guidebook you don't need a guide. You know, you don't need a guide. So I said to him, no, thank you, Neomar. We have our own feet, and we know which way is up. I think that was kind of clever? I didn't actually say that, (laughs) because I have eight words in uh, Balinese. um, But we said no. And we start walking along. And you know when you're when you're walking along, and, and he's following us, and he's got a bucket uh, with b- b- warm soda in a, in a bucket of water that I guess is part of the deal. And we're ignoring him, and we're walking along, and he's, and you know when you're like, trying to ignore somebody and you're trying to do something, and there's somebody like with you, and you, you might, maybe somebody here has that situation tonight, I don't know, but. Um, <laughs> We're, we're trying to ignore him, and uh, so we're going down this path, and finally the path ends nowhere, and just sort of a courtyard, no other path around, and there's Neomar, you know? <laughs> I said, okay, Neomar, just don't say I told you so, you're hired. Okay, so now we got our guide, and we're going up. Uh, it's a beautiful lakeside thing. We're going through beautiful uh, farms and going up up, up, and we're following Nehomar and then we leave the farmland and we're in these beautiful forests, trees like you've never seen around here. We're going through the forest and then we go past the tree line and we're up in grasses, beautiful grasses and little herbs, and we're going up, 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 and uh, we get about halfway, so it's the halfway mark, and there's a woman and there's a little hut and there's a woman with another bucket of warm soda and water. He says, this is my sister. Maybe it was a sister. This is my sister. She's going to join us. That's fine. Now we're, we're, we're going. Really? Uh, <laughs> was that the horn? Yes. Shit. All right, all right, all right. So uh, now we're in lava, cinders, and I'm wearing Birkenstocks. Uh, Shows you how cool I was. And no socks. I won't wear socks with Birkenstocks, not even in Bali. So it's really bad. It's really steep. I've got to hurry this up now. So I'm, I I'm almost can't do it. My head is pounding. I'm lightheaded. My heart is beating. But you've got to do it. I, I couldn't turn back. So we're there, and then Neomar says, we're about two minutes from the top, two minutes. So we look up to the top, and there's a little hut, and then there's these little stick figures running around. We get a little closer, and we see that three of the stick figures are chasing another stick figure. Okay, we get a little further up, pretty good, a couple hundred yards away. We see the lead chaser has a big old knife and is slashing at the other one. So I said, "Neomar," he said, "No problem, no problem." <laughs> <laughs> so the next thing we know, this the, the 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 pursued person jumps over the top of the thing and comes rolling and tumbling down the the slope, and uh, they're hurling curses and rocks at him, and we called him monkey, one thing they call him monkey. And uh, I said, Neomar, he said, no problem, no problem. The guy comes rolling down, he doesn't stop to chat. Um, He said something about the police. I said, Neomar, he said, no problem. So we get to the top, we climb up on this precipice, And here are these three or four people that... The the, the one with the knife was a woman and she was mean looking. So they start talking to Neomar and I know they're complaining about tourists because I can recognize we do it here, you know. (laughs) If you're visiting only in July and August, not in October. So um, I'm sure I'm gonna die. I'm sure I'm gonna die. But I figured, well, we're all the way up here. We might as well look at this uh, crater and this lake and have some pictures taken. And then Neomar says to me, "Um, You're thirsty, will you buy a drink? But he he didn't say it that way. He said, You're thirsty, you will buy a drink. Okay? So the whole power shift, right? So I said, Okay, you know, how much is it? So it's like five bucks for a, a 50 cent soda. And I'm a familiar with that too, because we do that in province now too. <laughs> so, um, so then he says, "And I'm thirsty. Uh, will I will? You will buy me a soda, okay, Neomar? Because meanwhile, now with these mean-looking people up there, we're like little daycare kids around the teacher. We're like Neomar, Neomar, you know, protect us. <laughs> so we buy him a soda. We pay him for his soda." Then he says, you know what, my sister's thirsty too. Okay, 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 okay. Now these, these, uh, the, the, this posse, these, this mob is coming over to us because they have their sodas, and we figure out what this other guy did wrong is he didn't buy their sodas. That was his whole offense. We were like, Neomar, Neomar, we got a plane to catch. We got to get out of here, you know. So we booked it out of there, and on the way down I tried to explain to him about um, they need like a visitor service board, they need a, they need a <laughs> chamber of commerce, they, they, they need to get it together there. Um, and I hate to leave you with the bad impression of the Balinese because I have a whole other ending which is much nicer the beautiful people, lovely people, lovely place, but that was my Mount Vitor experience.
0: Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and William Mullen with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.